everyone. Today is May 26th, 2021, and welcome to another edition of The Well-Read Investor, the podcast that profits your mind and your money. I'm your host, Mike Hansen. Today, we have award-winning scientist, author, educator, and film producer Sean B. Carroll with us to talk about the role of chance in biological life with his newest book, A Series of Fortunate Events, Chance and the Making of the Planet, Life, and You. Randomness and chance, of course, play a role in just about everything, and especially with investments. But there's wide debate about just how much of life, and especially market results, are defined by randomness, and how much of those things are truly within our control. The greatest scientists and philosophers of our age continue to wrestle with that issue. They always will, of course. And while we won't solve those deep life mysteries for you here, Sean's perspective on chance at the foundational level of biology, how randomness actually affects our very DNA, will make you think differently. This is a wide-ranging discussion about dinosaurs, viruses, DNA mutations, and so much else. Investors should pay close attention because while imperfect, analogies of markets to biological systems are well worth considering. More now about Sean. He's won more awards than we have time to list. He's an internationally recognized evolutionary biologist, and he leads the Department of Science Education at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. He's also the head of HHMI Tangled Bank Film Studios and maintains prominent and distinguished positions at the University of Maryland and the University of Wisconsin, among much else. What I personally like about Sean most, though, is his true commitment to communication. You'll know him from his award-winning book, The Serengeti Rules, The Quest to Discover How Life Works and Why It Matters, and also from films like 2020's Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. In fact, his films have garnered one Emmy win and two Emmy nominations. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Sean B. Carroll. Enjoy this one. Sean, thank you so much for being on the program. I've actually read several of your books, and in fact, The Serengeti Rules is how I first got my introduction to you. As a science writer for years with a focus on evolution, can you just give us a little bit of a background on your career, how you got to this point, and specifically your emphasis on communicating with the outside world? Well, sure, and and thanks for having me. I began my life as a biologist by flipping over logs and looking for salamanders and snakes and things like this. And I think that's true of a lot of my brethren, that if you have an attachment to nature, if you're interested in in wildlife, if you can be lucky enough to find a career where you get to do things you love and be around people who have similar passions like that, it's, it's great. And there was no master plan that I was going to wind up writing books or making films or anything like that. I just was really driven by curiosity about nature. And as I learned more about evolutionary science, I felt it it was the big picture. It was the big synthesis that kind of made sense out of life. And yet there were big questions that loomed. And for me, one of the main questions that I focused on was where do new things come from? How do new things evolve? How do new body parts evolve? And especially looked at the evolving physical diversity of the animal kingdom. How do you change the size, shape, number, color, whatever of pieces of anatomy. And that that's, was a long-held mystery, which I'd like to think we at least cracked that box open. And some of the cracking of that box, what happened was some of those discoveries were so surprising and I think appealing to the general audience that 
I started getting asked to give explanations to reporters or on camera in documentaries or public talks in museums and things like that. And I thought, well, I'm either going to give this talk a thousand times or I should really write down some of these things. That led to writing books. And then writing books led to making films when I started collaborating with filmmakers. And, you know, now I wind up um, leading a documentary film studio while also still being a scientist. So I hope that's the capsule summary of how you go from flipping logs in Toledo, Ohio to whatever I am now. It's amazing how communication is one of the skill sets that bridges so many different types of endeavors. But why this particular book? I mean, what was the impetus for writing a series of fortunate events? I think it's one of the underappreciated, under-discussed aspect of what we know about the natural world, which is the big role of chance. On the one hand, I think humans love chance in some way, right? We will bet on any game. We're excited to go to Vegas. We flock to the lotteries. We like that, but we don't like the idea of chance in our own personal lives. The role chance plays, for example, in our own health, the role that chance plays in the lottery at birth of the genetic ingredients we inherit, that can be unnerving. And in the bigger picture, the role chance is played in the course of life on earth. And the fact that were it not for some really big chance events, you and I would not be having this conversation and civilization would not exist. Let's talk about that for a second, because you open the book effectively with a geological history of the world. Why is that? I kind of bridge two stories that are familiar. I tell a story about Seth MacFarlane, who on September 10th, 2001, was giving a talk at his alma mater, the Rhode Island School of Design, stayed out late drinking and was late for his plane the next morning out of Boston's Logan Airport. He was about a half an hour late because of a mistake his travel agent made in writing down the time. So he missed American Flight 11, which was one of the two planes that hit the towers in New York. You know, what a difference 30 minutes can make. In his case, it was the line between life and mass murder. There's other instances in the big natural world. And I tell the story of the asteroid impact that I think most people have heard about that hit the earth about 66 million years ago that wiped out the great dinosaurs. Well, the more we study that impact, we know two things. First, that really mammals that had been around for about 100 million years before the impact did not have a very significant influence on the planet or even very impressive presence on the planet at the time of the impact. Well, they took off. Once these large dinosaurs were cleared out, the world was open to mammals. And in a very quick period of time, mammals became larger and more diverse than they had ever been in their whole 100 million year history and became then the largest animals in the seas and, and on land and still are. And of course, that led to primates. And primates, of course, led to us. And then here's the fact that I share in the book. That asteroid, which had been circling the solar system for perhaps uh, maybe 4 billion years, happened to enter the atmosphere in such a way that it hit the Yucatan Peninsula that day. Well, now geologists look at that impact site and they're like, you know what? It takes a particular toxic brew of what gets thrown up into the atmosphere by an impact to create a mass extinction. And those rocks in Yucatan just had the right chemistry. And that somewhere between 90, 99% of the surface of the earth does not have the right rocks. So had that asteroid entered 30 minutes earlier, it lands in the Atlantic, 30 minutes later, it lands in the Pacific. We don't have a mass extinction. Dinosaurs could still well be here and no humanity. So 30 minutes either way, well, for Seth, that was life or death. And maybe for the asteroid impact, that was either humanity or no humanity. 30 minutes, one way or the other. I'm glad you brought up Seth MacFarlane because I've heard you say that it's interesting that comedians are one of the only groups that have an ability to point out the absurdity or the chance of the world. And 
Do you think on some level this is about understanding, let's call it like a non-humanistic worldview, something that's non-centric to humans? What this leads you to is understanding that, you know, we don't live in the best of all possible worlds. We just live in our world, our world shaped by chance from the movements of continents to the fluctuations of the climate to the role of the genetic dice in our DNA, that there's just all of these chance-driven processes that have shaped the world that we know it. You know, that does overturn the way humans have been thinking for thousands of years, that we've always put ourselves the center of everything. But, you know, we're relatively late arriving on this planet and a whole lot happened before us. It's an understandable arrogance, but it's kind of arrogant (laughs) as it is. And I think we have to sort of see ourselves a little more humbly as just another member of nature. Actually, it's a pretty good worldview for an investor too, because humility is, is pretty much the name of the game. But in one of the things you talk about in the book is Monte Carlo example and the gambler's fallacy, which is ironic because there's something called a Monte Carlo analysis in finance. So tell us about the gambler's fallacy and, and why that just leads people astray so much. So I'll start with sort of what maybe an explanation of the psychology and then go back to the practical example that the story out of Monte Carlo was an incredible run on the roulette wheel of the same color coming up again and again and again. And betters then are sort of thinking, look, the other color has to come up on the next roll of the wheel, right? So red or red versus black, for example. But of course, every spin of the wheel is independent of the previous one. The wheel doesn't know what it spun before. So every bet is an independent bet. But our minds, we're pattern solving machines, right? You can think about as primates and, you know, we have full color vision, which is relatively rare in the animal kingdom. You know, we make these mental maps of wherever we are, et cetera. You know, we're always trying to figure our place in the world. We're always trying to figure out pattern. And the pattern thinks if it goes red, 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 and the alternative color is black, our brains are going, it's got to be black. It's got to be black. So we're betting and betting that the next roll is going to be black. So the gambler's fallacy is thinking that all these previous chance independent events have some influence on the next event when the next event is as independent as each individual prior event. And that makes us, well, makes us make mistakes to think that the opposite outcome has to happen. Maybe in our own personal lives, we might say, well, my family's all boys, as it turns out. Our kids are all boys, right? You think, well, the next kid's got to be a girl. Well, it's the same odds for every child born. So there's no bigger rule that says if you have, you know, four boys, the next one's going to be a girl. No, it's the roll of the dice and you have the same odds for each child. So we just get fooled a little bit thinking that there must be a pattern when there's no pattern. It's random. If we bet on the next event, we're just as likely to be wrong. In the investing world, what we say is stocks are non-serially autocorrelated. It's been established for a long time. And yet all you really do in this business is keep seeking out patterns based on past performance. So what is chance and randomness? I mean, in your mind, what's the definition? How should we think about that? So let's take maybe a a real world example would be the chromosomes you and I inherited from mom and dad. Okay. So dad's got 23 pairs of chromosomes. Mom has 23 pairs of chromosomes. They each donate half of those in the making of you and I. And so that's how we get made. And you might say, well, this is why we resemble our parents. But now here's a fun thing to play with. How many genetically unique children could any couple have? Donating 23 chromosomes in the sperm, 23 chromosomes in the egg, how many could they make? And if you start doing the math, it's not 23, it's not 46, it's not 92, it's over 70 trillion, okay? (laughs) 
when I say random, it's because which chromosomes get packaged into the sperm or the egg is random. And there's that many combinations. And then which sperm is lucky enough to be the one out of hundred million or more that make the trip up the fallopian tube and successfully fertilize the egg. That's a one in a hundred million shot. That's a really biologically random process. There's only a finite number of children your parents could make, but it's still 70 trillion. (laughs) So when I say random, it's much like the flip of a coin or something that has so many factors that it essentially behaves like a random chance driven process. In saying those things, though, you take a very interesting turn because you make the claim that chance is really the foundation of creativity. Tell us about that. In the biological world, so here are some facts. You are you and distinctly you because of your DNA. We won't get into your cultural experiences because that's also shapes you in your brain. But I'm just saying biologically, you're you and I'm me. We're genetically distinct. And in fact, because of the process I just told you of the sorting of chromosomes, no two human eggs and therefore no two humans other than twins will ever be identical on this planet. We're just generating diversity all day long in people. The reason why chance is such an important maker of all diversity comes down to the level of DNA. And changes in DNA take place every time a new individual is made. We call those mutations. Hmm. Well, we now really understand the deep root of mutation. And it is a chance process. It has to do with the chemistry of the very bases that endow DNA with its properties. These bases go through little shape shifts, little spontaneous shape shifts. And if they're going through a little shape shift at the moment they're being copied by the machinery, you get a change, a mutation. And that mutation means that's the source of all the diversity in the world. Because if all DNA, if every creature is different because of what's in its DNA, you say, well, how did that DNA become different? It all became different because of this chance-based mechanism. So chances at the root of all diversity, all beauty, all complexity in the living world starts with a chance event. I think there's some philosophers that have lived over the last couple thousand years whose minds would explode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the fun of it. But it's creative. I'm fascinated by the idea, though, how do you delineate the difference between what is chance and then what becomes contingent? You touch on this a little bit in the book. Yeah. So chance, we'll just talk about the event, but these chance events become contingency. So let's say you, your existence was contingent on your mom and dad meeting, right? Okay. You as that outcome was a chance. Okay. But their meeting is a contingency for you to exist. Okay. So these chance events become contingencies sort of through the the retrospective of, of history. It's useful to draw a distinction between contingency and chance is that chance events become contingencies when there are yet more events to happen. The asteroid was a contingency for the existence of humanity. It itself was a chance event. No asteroid, no humans. So is it fair to say this is potentiality becoming history in the unfolding of that? Yeah, and there's enormous range of potentialities. And it's just those particular circumstances that essentially give you the events that become history. Yes. One of the really interesting ways, I think it's towards the back half of the book, where you talk about how chance affects the immune system, and especially the way things like cancer happen and so forth. And I think people would really love to hear you just say a little bit about how that works. Well, let's start with cancer. I mean, every family is going to experience it somehow, somewhere. It's one of our greatest challenges in dealing with it. It's also been an enormous focus for science for the last 50 years. And what we really understand so much better than 25 years ago is that individual cancers are are essentially a 
a genetic, you can think of cancer as a genetic disease, but not a genetic disease that's inherited. It's a genetic disease that occurs spontaneously in our tissues through the accumulation of mutations. So that very process that I'm talking about that happens in the making of a new individual, well, in your body, every time a cell doubles, every time a cell multiplies, its DNA is copied, new mistakes get made, new mutations happen, and the cumulative effect of some of those mutations may be to change the properties of that cell in such a way that it grows. So the root of cancer is chance mutation. That knowledge Let's chew on that for a little bit. Well, what does that mean? Well, that knowledge, we're going to absorb that in different ways. First of all, I think from the viewpoint of empathy, you know, if you know anyone, for example, whose child is struck with cancer, I think the most kind thing you can do is to say to them, there's nothing you did to cause it. There's nothing you could have done to prevent it. That this is just, I know it sounds trite. This is just bad luck. This is just through changes in DNA that you had no influence over. This is just something, unfortunately, that happens to those of us who are alive. On the other hand, as scientists have studied the very genes that get changed in cancers, there's about 150 genes out of the 20,000 we have that are repeatedly changed in the entire spectrum of cancers. That has equipped us with whole new ways of beating cancer. So there's all sorts of targeted drugs, now scores of them, that didn't exist 25 years ago because my brethren who've worked on the genetics of cancer and the ability to determine the sequences of genes in cancers, this gives us powerful targeted therapies. So while the event itself is scary as can all be, and, you know, just for the record, I'm, I just got off a phone call 10 minutes ago with an update over on a family member. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll make that as mm -hmm. concrete as I can. That is very frightening, but we have to understand this is part of being alive your risk goes up as you age. It's about a hundredfold higher at age 70 than it is at age 35 because you're accumulating all these mutations. But our knowledge is so much more powerful that this has led to much better targeted therapies. And I think, you know, outcomes for lots and lots of cancers are so much better now than they were just 10 years ago. So understanding this chance mechanism, you can see it's, we've kind of left the philosophical realm. We're in the practical realm yeah. of understanding, hey, for every biopsy I get, a lab should be looking at the sequence, the DNA sequence of these cancers, figuring out which genes have been changed, figuring out how that correlates with the progression of the disease and which therapies, for example, would be indicated. That's where the, the fundamental understanding of chance mutation meets our daily life. I want to talk to you then a little bit about particularly thinking about evolution and futurity, the role of chance. I mean, you make the point in the book that change is an absolute necessity. It's built into the DNA. And so I just want to hear your thoughts about that and perhaps where you think things could go, especially as an evolutionary biologist. Well, that's cool. I mean, where things have been is also fascinating. So if yeah. that's any lesson, you know, life is about 3.8 billion years old and you look through time, if you landed on this planet, you know, 100 million years ago, it was a really different place. And 500 million years ago, oh, wow. Well, you wouldn't found any life on land. So that would have probably thrown you off. You go back a billion years ago, everything was microscopic, right? And there's, there's nothing large. It, all life was essentially, you know, cellular. So life has changed a lot. Therefore, with some humility, we look forward, right? We hope that the big stuff, right? Dinosaurs were doing great. I mean, large reptiles were doing great for 150 million years on this planet. And they got taken out in an instant. That asteroid impact 
cause such catastrophic change to the Earth's environment, well, immediately for decades and long-ranging effects for thousands of years, that large creatures like these large dinosaurs just couldn't make it. There was not enough food. That the whole food chain was shut down. Barring those catastrophes, you know, life is going to meander here. And of course, the biggest influence now on the planet is us. Uh-huh. Right? We are having the greatest impact on life's direction on the planet. But if we just pull back from that a little bit, what do you see in the future? If we were a little less influential, <laughs> life continues to diverge. Life continues to adapt. Life continues to change. That's just going to be a given. So what life looks like 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, a million years from now, probably depends on what our species does. We've just reached this point where with 8 billion of us and our footprint on the planet is such that we're shaping the direction of life because we're sorting out which species are well-adapted to life in this human-dominated planet and which ones are not. That's what has a lot of us concerned. We're unwittingly ruling a very big lottery. Future life on Earth, very human influence. Future life in the universe, we haven't even discovered it yet. If you go to JPL in Pasadena and you talk to what those NASA folks are doing, they are so jacked to try to finally get a glimpse at life somewhere elsewhere in the universe. And we would trade a lot of dollars (laughs) to know what that life is made of. It's so cool to hear someone like you say that. I mean, I, of course, had similar thoughts, but it's just fascinating. And it is a little bit more of an optimistic note. And I want to finish our time with you, though, Sean, to talk a little bit more about what you're up to. First, I want to just ask you about how do you pick topics for books and how do you go about deciding your communication method to the rest of the world? Topics of books, it sounds kind of corny, but I think they kind of choose me in mm. the sense that an idea rattles around there for so long and doesn't let you go. So things will come and go and they won't take enough shape and they won't kind of grip you. But some things, for example, the book about chance, I've been thinking about that for a long time. And I just really was thinking about how to tackle it because I wanted to make it accessible, even fun. I didn't want to make it ponderous and academic and thick. I wanted to make it as tangible as possible in people's real lives because I think this perspective enriches our lives. I guess it's probably going to shake some people up Up for others. It might enrich their lives. In this case, I was thinking, how can I make it a little bit lighthearted, either with the anecdotes or some humor or things like this, so that, first of all, that does reflect my personality, which is, I love stand-up comedy. I love a good joke. I love a good yarn. I wanted to have that kind of voice in this book. You know, as risky as that may be, either if you are not funny, or if your scientist friends think you shouldn't be joking around. (laughs) Life is short, you got to take your chances. So in this case, I consciously wanted to make a short, somewhat lighthearted, but very tangible set of stories about how chance influences our lives. Yeah, and I should tell listeners that you can read this particular book in an afternoon or two, and it really is quite engaging. It's funny, too, because we here that do a lot of communication on the investing side, I study comedy all the time. And in fact, my boss told me, he said, you want to learn how to speak in front of an audience, go watch stand-up comedy. Uh, which I'm itching to do again at some point, hopefully in the near future. So we were talking a little offline before we started this, though. You've got a lot of things going on, and you're actually an executive film producer as well. So tell us what's happening next, and how did you get into that? I got to meet a lot of filmmakers over the years, mostly by participating in their documentaries, and kept asking them, you know, what do you need to do your best work? And I think they often felt that they were rushed, under-resourced, that there was another way you could do some things. And when I got the chance, I worked for a philanthropy called the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. We're the largest funder of science and science education in the U.S. 
I thought, well, you know, I, there's a lot of stories from science that need to be told. Science needs to be a part of our culture. And the way to do that is through storytelling. And film is the most powerful means. You know, it's, it's images. It can bring parts of the invisible world or the past to life that, you know, we can't experience in real time. It's an emotional experience. It's not just a cerebral experience. And so with film being so powerful, it, it sort of led me into collaborating with filmmakers. And so we've made a lot of films. We got a lot of films to come and we're often trying to tell inspiring or important stories out of the world of science with broad audiences, including young audiences. We've got to inspire people's interest in the world we live in, asking questions about it. How does it work? Why is this here? How did it get here? The mysteries of life through the scientific lens. Yeah. And so you've got something just about to come out. Tell us about that. A film on CNN called Race for the Vaccine. We were part of a team of production companies involved in the making of this film. The making of this film, probably one of the more challenging ones because it was made entirely during, of course, during the pandemic. The main teams, both in the U.S. and in Britain, but filmed on five continents. And it, we started at the beginning, so we didn't know which horses were going to cross the finish line. So we had to get access to teams that were involved in developing all sorts of vaccines and follow them through those processes and see what happened. And I certainly, even though I'm not only a trained biologist, I'm actually a trained immunologist in my early oh. days. If we had had this conversation in April of 2020 and said, Sean, where would you place your bet? In fact, it's a bet that might have some pretty big financial consequences that you know what the vaccine companies have done. I couldn't have guessed. Nobody could have guessed of what design, what vaccine designs would be effective and which ones would fail. So this is on CNN. Sanjay Gupta is narrating it, but it gives you a behind the scenes view of the scientists in the design, the development, the testing, and even the manufacture, which is no small task at all, which is to make hundreds of millions of billions of doses of these things. These are the people you haven't seen. You may not know, but you go to the grocery store with them. You just don't know that they spent their last year trying to save our lives. That's awesome. I really look forward to that. You know, it's a funny thing because we in the forecasting business, mostly of human behavior, because that's what I think most of market behavior is, this confounded everyone. Completely. And, and on that basis, it's one of the great lessons that I've ever witnessed. Everybody had ideas about this stuff and, and who knew what the outcomes would be. Once again, going back to the humility of chance, we always finish our interviews with what do you like to read, Sean? And what are you reading these days? I've been reading a little bit, funny enough, about human psychology. And part of that is to understand what, both what we've been through and I think what we're going through, which is why when confronted with solid facts, why, when confronted with the opportunity to save your life, people don't choose to embrace either of those things. Uh -huh. So the book I'm going to talk about is called Mistakes Were Made, But Not <laughs> By Me, by Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. And it's this whole realm of sort of cognitive dissonance. Why do we hold on to things that are just untrue and hold on to them tenaciously? And how do we even come up with these thoughts in the first place? I don't think I have to pick out too many incidents, whether it's the pandemic or our politics, People hold to things tenaciously, and we can't all be right. <laughs> so we need some ways of figuring out what is closer to the truth and to share that with each other. And, and we got to find ways to get back to that, because I don't really recognize the world we're living in right now to the one I grew up with in the 1960s. I think expertise is not viewed in the same way. People have their different sources. We can't live in a world of alternative sources and alternative facts. So without preaching any further, the book that I recommend is called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. 
Regardless of partisanship, especially in investing, cognitive dissonance is one of the absolute key problems. I mean, it's pernicious and persistent, and I agree with you. It's a different world today in, in many ways. Sean B. Carroll, thank you so much for doing this. It was a tremendous conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. That was our talk with Sean B. Carroll. Now, to me, we should always consider the role of chance in markets because it allows us to think about the counterfactual, to ask how things could have been if this or that simply happened a little differently. Particularly with markets, there's a tendency to view the past as it had to be this way, as if there's a kind of destiny to market and economic outcomes. We don't ask often enough how it could have been, And as Sean says, had things just been a little different, even by just a few minutes here or there, it's possible dinosaurs would still be ruling this planet. With markets, while humans as a community do of course tend to repeat behaviors through time, that's against a backdrop of chaotic life where many things are possible, but only one history actually happens. Okay, we're back in two weeks as usual with more great interviews. Remember to find us on Twitter at WellReadPod and Instagram at WellReadInvestorPod or just Google the WellRead Investor to see what I'm reading, reviewing, and talking about each week in and out. And as always, may all your reading profit your mind and your money. Take care. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time, based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. The opinions and viewpoints of podcast guests are not necessarily those of Fisher Investments. Copyright Fisher Investments 2021.